The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. O Lord, may your word only be spoken, and may your word only be heard. In the name of Jesus Christ, the living word. Amen. When I was in graduate school some 20-something years ago, studying for a Ph.D. in history, which I never finished, I was also deeply struggling with attraction to the Christian faith. My mother and stepfather, during my college years, had undergone kind of a renewed energized attraction to Christianity and my mother even uh, at that point in her conversion liked to use the term born again a term which I in my urbane sophistication held at arm's length thinking that to be something a little bit beneath um, something that educated people talked about But during that time in uh, their life, they had undergone uh, kind of a conversion process. And while I held that uh, term uh, with some disdain, my own life was so unsatisfactory. And my parents' lives, though uh, far from perfect, 
seemed to hold so much promise that I couldn't contain myself or my curiosity about this Christianity stuff. So I started to kind of sneak around, try to learn more about it. Since I loved to sing, I happened during that time in my life, I happened to join a choir that just happened to sing in a church, happened to be uh, a church that met on Sunday mornings. <laughs> and um, I went to the chaplain's dinners at Brown on Sunday evenings because, well, after all, I had to eat somewhere. Why not eat there? Most memorably to me now were the times that I went into the College Hill bookstore in Providence and kind of slunk into the religion aisle as if there were the adult magazines there, you know. I didn't, <laughs> didn't want anybody to see me there. And I remember looking through volumes of uh, C.S. Lewis and um, St. Augustine, among others, hoping on the one hand that my graduate student colleagues and professors might, gosh, I hope they wouldn't see me there. And then on the other hand, thinking to myself, well, these guys that I'm pulling down off the shelves, they were pretty smart, right? I mean, C.S. Lewis went to Oxford and they taught at Cambridge and, gee, Augustine was kind of one of the roots of Western political philosophy and uh, intellectual thought in the West generally. I mean, they were pretty smart, right? And they were followers of Jesus. Maybe someone like me who thought he was pretty smart too could be one also. So when I hear the story of Nicodemus, I wonder if with his pedigree, perhaps even pretensions, he might have had some of the same feelings about seeing Jesus there in the middle of the night. Now the character of Nicodemus is unique to the fourth gospel. He appears three times in the Gospel of John. The first time is in the one-on-one -on -one tutorial that we see this morning that Tony just read. That's the first time. And the second time we see him, he is uh, in the process of trying to get uh, a fair hearing for Jesus as things begin to get a little bit hotter around Jesus' ministry and he starts to get into trouble. We see Nicodemus uh, trying to get Jesus to have a fair hearing. And then finally, the last time we see Nicodemus in the Gospel of John is after Jesus has been crucified and he helps to give Jesus a proper and decent burial. He's identified in the Gospel in this passage that we heard this morning as a Pharisee, number one, and as a leader of the Jews. Two kind of official designations. As a Pharisee, he had particular training and expertise and pride in the definition and application of the Jewish purity laws to everyday life. In other words, if you wanted to be a good Jew, the best possible Jew, he looked to a Pharisee. The Pharisees knew how to do it. In fact, they, they were so good at it that their name itself, Pharisee, comes from the Greek word to be, to be separate. They really um, were in a kind of a class by themselves as people who tried to lead the perfect Jewish lawful life in every aspect of their daily existence. 
He was also, he's also called in uh, the gospel a leader of the Jews. And scholars tell us that um, this particular phrase suggests that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish uh, system, Jewish uh, court system. Many towns in ancient Palestine had these Sanhedrins as the final arbiters of Jewish law when there were disputes in those towns. And the great Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, if you will, was in Jerusalem. By tradition, this great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem had 71 sages, exactly 71 sages, and they met daily, except on the Sabbath and except during uh, festivals and holy days. They met daily to decide on what was brought before them. It was the final authority on Jewish law. And Nicodemus was a member of it. So all this is to say that Nicodemus, as a Pharisee and as a member of the Sanhedrin, was a powerful man with lots of prestige and education, seeking an encounter with a religious leader who was beginning to trouble the establishment a bit. And at this particular time, during this particular encounter, uh, was a time, uh, was the festival of the Passover was being celebrated. So Jerusalem would have been teeming with pilgrims there to celebrate the High Holy Day. So, it seems, Nicodemus goes at night to see Jesus. Now, why was this? Well, it could be a mixture of a couple of things. One is uh, that since it is a very crowded uh, um, festival time, lots of people, uh, lots of uh, talking, lots of conversations and gatherings, here's a pretty powerful guy who obviously has some questions on his mind. And given his status and position, he might want to kind of find this Jesus guy kind of in the dark. For no one can see him. No one can see his curiosity, his uh, wonder, maybe his, uh, his fear, his anxiety about his own questions, his anxiety about being seen with this man. Maybe even being seen as sympathetic to his heterodox ideas and the people that he hung out with. Not the kind a Pharisee would want to be seen hanging out with. So it could be that under the cloud of darkness, Nicodemus has some safety for his questions, for his vulnerability, for his yearning, for his seeking. It could also be, and this makes sense to those of us who've ever been students, sometimes the middle of the night is the best time to get work done. Things are quiet. People who need to be asleep are. You can uh, have quiet time, access to a computer. And apparently, uh, it was customary in ancient times for rabbis to study with their students late into the night. In addition, someone serious about talking with Jesus would have tried to find times when they could get some uninterrupted time. Now, you know, we don't know the details, of course, but you 
can imagine Jesus maybe being a little bit annoyed. <laughs> maybe he's trying to sleep and Nicodemus knocks on his door and says, Rabbi, do you have a minute? In any case, I think there's probably both of these things going on. There's, there's the, the traditional studying habits of an educated rabbi seeking another teacher. And of course they're going to talk in the middle of the night. That's when your best work gets done. It's uninterrupted. It's undisturbed. You can really concentrate on what's at hand. But I think there's also this aspect of fear, of anxiety, of wondering what is he getting himself into meeting this Jesus person. I can't let anybody see me with him. So I think there are two couple of things going on. I think it's clear that Nicodemus is opening himself to change, to being changed. And at least as this gospel records this encounter, as Nicodemus and Jesus go back and forth in this little tutorial, Nicodemus says less and less, which suggests that something is changing in his mind. His first uh, uh, words to Jesus, kind of a couple of sentences there, and then the next time he speaks, fewer words, and then finally he says, what can this mean? His formerly sure base of knowledge, of everything that he knew, is, is of less use to him as he tries to understand what this new teacher of somewhat questionable background is trying to teach him. That's Jesus's, I'm sorry, Nicodemus's first appearance in the Gospel of John. This interaction one-on-one with Jesus as he sort of confronts the limits of his past, of his training, of his experience, as he seeks to open himself to this wandering rabbi. The second appearance of Nicodemus in the Gospel of John is when things are really beginning to get kind of hot for Jesus. Um, He's really trying to give the authorities um, worries about whether he's going to upset the the delicate balance of power with Rome and stir up the people. It's during another festival time, which was always a time that the Romans were a little bit nervous because Jerusalem gets more populated. Uh, There's more chance for uh, disruption and uh, mayhem. And uh, the Jewish authorities are trying to figure out a way to get Jesus into custody, trying to pin something on him so they can uh, kind of get him out of the mainstream of what's going on in Jerusalem and kind of keep, keep a lid on things. And Nicodemus says to them, well, you know, you can't just haul him in. Our law says we have to give somebody who's been accused of something a chance to testify on his own behalf. That's what we do. That's our, that's our tradition. That's our law. And his cohorts on the Sanhedrin say, who are you? Are you following him? What are you talking about? Doing a little poetic license here. But there's this, there's this sense that he has really begun to transgress a boundary, given his status in society. But he's willing to take that risk to say, you know, guys, this is what we're supposed to do. This is, this is what our tradition teaches. And they say, no, this is too important to follow our tradition. That's the second appearance of Nicodemus, silenced by the insinuation that he must be one of those crazy Galileans. 
And finally, the third time Nicodemus appears is after Jesus' crucifixion. Nicodemus, uh, along with Joseph of Arimathea, uh, is part of the group that takes Jesus down from the cross. None of the actual disciples are around. They've scattered. Or people who've, uh, people who've been identified in the Gospels as disciples. None of them are around. But Nicodemus is there. And apparently, um, he must, be a person, must have been a person of some financial means because he is carrying something between, the text says, something between 75 and 100 pounds of myrrh and aloe, which were um, spices and uh, ointments, botanicals that were used to dress bodies for burial. And he was going to see to it that Jesus got the best burial he could get. That's the third time that we see Nicodemus in the gospel. Now, somewhere along the line, Nicodemus had been transformed. He had gone from being a seeker to being a disciple, all the while navigating what must have been for him the really kind of tantalizing certainties, things that he could hold on to, about his status, his training, his education, his social networks, they all must have been very, very tempting to hold on to. And yet, he found himself putting that all at risk in order to learn about what Jesus may have had to offer him. I imagine the Nicodemus in all of us, regardless of our actual social or educational or financial pedigrees, we all have those things, attitudes or jobs or connections or self-perceptions or actual practices, what have you, that we can be tempted to rest on, that we use to kind of protect us, to shield us, to keep us comfortable. And yet, Jesus calls us to let go of those things that we protect ourselves with, that keep us, uh, that make barriers around us in our hearts, that keep us from knowing God and one another more fully. In Nicodemus, though, I think we see someone taking steps to let go of those things that he could use to protect himself, to keep himself safe. We see him, I think, being a model for letting go of those certainties that may comfort and benefit us, but which pale in comparison to what Jesus has to offer, the offer of life lived at a deeper and more profound level. Amen.